Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. We've got Jeff Kindig here. He is the managing partner, also the founder of Bravos Capital. Jeff, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. For those who haven't heard of Bravos Capital, what is it? How did you get involved? How long have you been doing it? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, my background is, you know, I have over a decade of experience in the kind of lower middle market private equity world in the mainstream industries. Um, and then I, I became very interested in the hemp and cannabis industries uh, back in 2017 is when I made my first personal investment in the space and quickly saw the writing on the wall of, of you know, how big this industry was likely to get and, and how many people were kind of ignoring it or, or, or just not paying attention. And so my old firm had no interest in even discussing the topic of, of investing in those industries. And uh, they have public pension fund LPs that also kind of prevent them from getting involved in vice industries. And so I ultimately had to make a decision of whether to stay in the warm you know, confines of the uh, private equity ivory tower or to leave and, and try and chart a path in the emerging hemp and cannabis industry. And so that's what I eventually decided to do in uh, early 2018 and parted ways amicably with my old firm and, and the partners there, obviously doing, um, you know, fairly non-competitive investing uh, strategies. And so I formed Bravos Capital in spring of 2018 to focus uh you know, exclusively in these in these kind of two very similar but slightly different uh, emerging industries. And it's been a wild ride. I want to ask what the difference is between investing now, post-pandemic, and what you were looking at in 2017. A lot's changed. So we're going to get there. <clears throat> First thing I want to ask you, though, um, is about... Um, just being able to pivot to stay relevant. There's been a lot of things that have happened. What advice do you have for anybody who's just now starting to look in the industry on how to get in and how to remain in? Yeah, well, it's definitely piqued a lot of people's interest. The public markets obviously have been um, very positively responsive, I guess is the way I would put it, to the, uh, to the recent election in, in November. Um, obviously with Democrats in the White House and in, in Congress and in the Senate that presents a more, um, I guess a more likely or a faster track to, to some kind of federal legalization. So there's obviously a lot of, you know, folks kind of getting in on the retail investment side and the public stocks. Um, you know, the private side seems to be where, you know, the vast majority of the companies still remain. Obviously it's not easy to go public as a cannabis company in this country, but, um, you know, from my perspective, I've been I've been always more focused on the private side. That's my kind of background in private equity, and and so, you know, my thesis has always been: look, there's these the public companies are going to be much more subject to the kind of volatility of the public markets, which we've now come to see over the last you know 12 months that the public markets are nothing if not extremely volatile, and that creates opportunities on the investors, but it also creates a lot of risk because it's hard to pinpoint you know, what is the appropriate, you know, PE ratio for this particular stock and, and, you know, fundamentals are starting to somewhat go out the window for, for, you know, the bulk of different uh, public stocks these days. So we had fundamentals in the last 10, 20 years. <laughs> they're out there. They're not getting as much, you know, news on the front page, but uh, <laughs> so, so I guess from my perspective, I, I like the idea of investing in the private companies that are the, you know, up and comers that are likely to be able to go public in the next few years or be acquired by the public companies that are, you know, filling their coffers right now with a lot of, you know, retail investment dollars. And so to me, that presents a multiple arbitrage opportunity where the private companies will trade at multiples far below the public stocks. And therefore, if you can find some pretty solid, you know, management teams in the private sector, those will become either the next publics or they become acquisition targets for the publics that need to find growth in other geographies. So moving on to like what you were investing in before versus now, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of drive into things that haven't worked out. You know, people are trying to push the envelope in this, this new industry beverages, 
you know, you may have thought that beverages would be a slam dunk, and yet it's one of the hardest consumer product goods to sell. You could see a million dollar write off from Aurora and a three or billion, a one billion dollar write off from Aurora and three billion dollar write off from Canopy. Um, whether or not that was all attributed to beverages, probably not, but still um, a huge write off. The other things we kind of saw that maybe didn't work out from pre pandemic investment trends were accurate uh, dosing, um, you know, with vaping, especially. And, um, and some other uh, tech plays. What are you kind of seeing the difference in uh, with private equity pre versus post pandemic? Where were you at in 2017? Where are you at now? Yeah, yeah, it's a fair question. So when I first entered the space, I, I focused primarily on the ancillary services or tech side of the cannabis space. Um, you know, my first investment was in a company called Trees uh, with a Z. They're a, a, a retail POS SaaS company. Um, and you know, my second investment was a company called Healy, which is a B2B SaaS and telemedicine platform. Um, so I, I focused initially on the ancillary side, the companies that were the proverbial picks and shovels, if you will. Um, but then you know, slowly but surely made my way to the comfort zone of investing in leaf touching businesses as well. Um, you know, I think you know, back in 2017 and 2018, you know, there was a lot of the ancillary services that just weren't yet being provided to the industry. I mean, even stuff as basic as HR, um, you know, all the big payroll companies like ADP and those guys like weren't interested and still aren't interested in touching the space. And so there were some very basic things from the services side of, of the equation that, um, you know, were going to be necessary for this space. And they're not the sexiest thing in the world, but they're absolutely you know, necessities for, for these businesses. And, you know, those were the opportunities that kind of seemed interesting back then a little bit more so than, than today. I think uh, there's still opportunities for ancillary plays in the industry. Um, I think the most interesting of them tend to be around um, the data side of the equation and how to harvest and, and utilize the data that comes through this very, very highly regulated industry. And because of that regulation and because of the seed to sale tracking that is uh, obligatory in every state, there is a lot more data more readily available in this industry than there is in your typical mainstream industry. And so that data can be used to make better business decisions if you can harvest it and make sense of it properly. And so I think those kind of more data oriented um, plays are interesting on the ancillary side. And now that there's a lot more data available because the industry has matured so much over the last few years, those plays are getting more interesting. Um, that being said, I think, you know, because more and more states are opening up now, there's, that's where the leaf touching, you know, opportunities arise in a state that hasn't had it legal yet and now is opening up. Um, so as that kind of legalization trend continues to spread along, there's a lot more states that are available now for leaf touching investments than there were back in 2017. I really like the, the data analytics from headset BDS analytics, especially during a time right now when you know, you're using cash, right? So you're able to, it's harder for other analytics companies without using credit card data to get what headsets able to do in these stores for that reason. And so looking at, online ordering and, and things that are getting fast tracked, like delivery, Washington State, where I'm at in Seattle, we don't have delivery, but that's going to get fast tracked. Whereas, you know, um, marijuana lounges are going to be put on the shelf for a while. Um, what are some things that you've seen that might get moved up a lot faster as a result of, of the pandemic um, from from your investments? Um, what are you kind of seeing where, where it's been maybe move forward or, you know, there's this new out of nowhere um, opportunity? It's an interesting question. I mean, it, the thing that stands out to me the most, about you know, how the cannabis industry was impacted by um, the pandemic was it actually, like, it, it surprised a lot of people, but most states treated cannabis, you know, retail stores as essential services because of the medical marijuana component of, of the industry and how that's how basically every state starts is with a medical uh, cannabis program of some sort. And um, so that was very, you know, that, that was very interesting. It was, obviously, it's very helpful for, for uh, all the cannabis operators. 
Um, but it did present challenges in terms of like how many people can be in the store at a time and all the usual challenges for any retail store in a pandemic. But it obviously forced the delivery side of the equation to really come to the forefront for all the states that had a delivery, you know, kind of program in place. Um, and so there were some, you know, retailers that were caught a little flat footed because, you know, they didn't have that piece of the infrastructure fully built out or ready to kind of scale to the level that it needed to scale to in such a short period of time. Um, so that definitely presented like a lot of opportunities for the uh, delivery focused retail operators. And obviously in California, we can have uh, delivery only licenses. And so that, you know, there's obviously still some, you know, back and forth in, in the court system over whether a, a delivery business can deliver to a county that hasn't allowed any retail stores. Um, so there's still some conflict going on there. But generally speaking, I think delivery was like the biggest, uh, you know, kind of piece of the of the puzzle that, you know, bore fruit during during the pandemic. So there's a lot more states that have opened up uh, after the election in November, um, South Dakota, Montana, Arizona, New Jersey, and Missouri with medical. With where are you at in terms of your investment comfort? Are you looking at East Coast or West Coast? Are you looking at the FOMO on the East Coast? Or are you looking at value on the West Coast with potential distressed assets? Or are you looking at yeah. both? Yeah, kind of open to both. Um, we uh, completed an investment in a, a vertically integrated uh, cannabis operator in, in the state of Michigan um, a little over a month ago. Um, we think, uh, we think there's a, a big opportunity in Michigan, which is not dissimilar from opportunities in other states that are more East coast oriented, like Massachusetts, for instance. Um, so yeah, we're, we're open to both sides of the country in the middle of the country. It, it really is just looking for interesting opportunities with really strong operators. Um, and preferably not like for the leaf touching business, it's hard to get, uh, you know, it kind of, those are, those tend to be more growth stage investments, not like first round seed stage investments for us. Mm. Um, but, uh, but we're also looking on the West coast and right now I'm pretty deep into diligence on a, on a California based uh, operator that would be basically trying to pursue a roll up strategy here in the state of California. So, you know, it's, there's, there's interesting opportunities everywhere. And that's the, that's the, the, you know, I guess that's the good and the bad in, in a way. There's just a ton of stuff happening in this space as more and more states have legalized and, and it, there's opportunities in all facets of the kind of supply chain. Um, you know, some deals are more interesting, have a more interesting equity story uh, for us than others. And, but that doesn't mean that the other ones are, are without merit. Uh, and in some cases we've done debt investments in the ones that, you know, we think are, you know, pretty solid credits, but we're not convinced that they're going to go to the moon, but there's an opportunity mm -hmm. to earn a decent return on the debt in, in those cases. And so, you know, we've, we've played both sides of the cap table in that way. With debt, I, w I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> is that more because you are, you're more risk averse with that scenario? Um, or are you more opportunistic with that? Most people take equity, uh, taking debt, and, and historically speaking, you're wanting some collateral because you're not sure if it's going to work out. What, what's the advantages um, and strategy with equity versus debt? Yeah, so on the debt deals, those are deals where we are not as convinced on the equity story and maybe there's a disagreement uh, or just too far of a gap on like what the valuation of the business should be on the equity. You mean people don't um, have a $420 million, $420 million valuation like legitimately? That's weird. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, in those cases, like it can be hard to bridge that gap. And so it's like, okay, well, we can structure this as a debt deal with, you know, with or without you know, some kind of equity warrants or a kicker on, on the back end. And, but if we're doing a, you know, a debt investment that has, that is non-dilutive and has no equity component to it, you know, we're going like our investor base is expecting equity like returns one way or the other, right? Obviously there's more equity upside in, a, in an equity deal, right? If it goes to the moon, if it comes to the next, you know, canopy or, or, or GTI or whatever. Um, but, you know, on the debt side, then, you know, we're still going to earn a double digit, you know, 
uh, return on investment in the IRR form, but you know that may be the preference for for those operators in that you know they think they're when they do an equity round twelve months from now, using the growth that our capital helped provide for them, they'll be valued at you know two or three times the value that they are today, and and that's really what they think their equity is worth, and therefore it makes sense to take the kind of interim financing from from somebody like us. Is there anywhere that you're looking forward to? Like, if is there a new state that you're excited about, um, whether it's Virginia that's trying to, to make some moves right now, or Kentucky that has the least funded pension plan and will have to legalize eventually because they're dead broke? Um, are there any new states and or uh, opportunities that you are excited about? Yeah, Virginia's super interesting. I think um, Massachusetts, obviously, there's been a lot of attention paid there. Michigan, um, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I guess because I've spent more time in, in Michigan because of the diligence on that one deal, I know a lot more about it than I do about the makeup of the Virginia market, for instance. But, you know, the thing that I love about Michigan is that it's got double the population of Colorado. And like one tenth of the supply, mm. and so you just start doing the basic math on your, you know, supply and demand curves, and you can see why there's just a lot of, of, you know, runway for growth in that state that's been largely overlooked. And part of it was the timing of when they legalized. They kind of came online uh, with a legal structure like end of 2019, right, right around the time when all the capital markets kind of like got distracted and, and pulled out of cannabis. So there was a real lack of capital um, coming into the cannabis industry, you know, circa Q4, 2019, Q3, 2019. And uh, it just made it really hard for, for small startups in a state that often gets overlooked by a lot of investment uh, community. Um, and so that's the one that I think, you know, we were most excited about, um, but, but yeah, there's 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 super interesting stuff happening all across the country, and I think uh, you know the states that figure it out first, and and there's some states that are moving faster than others. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Arizona just went from medical only to to recreational. I think we're ex all expecting to see a lot of growth um, in that market just because of that. Um, but the states that get it figured out first, or or and and put a good you know thoughtful regulatory framework in place. Uh, are gonna see outsized benefits, I think, and 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 you know, capital is gonna go to where the best opportunities are uh, from a regulatory framework standpoint. So that's, I think, my message to all the politicians and all the various states out there is like, you know, you don't want to be the last one on on this on this bus, you know, like it, it there's benefits to being earlier rather than later. Yeah, I think ultimately what's going to speak the most to them is dollars and cents. And to your point about Michigan, um, $104 million in the month of February isn't bad. Comparing that to Illinois, $121 million uh, in total sales for the month. But Michigan's got 196% year-over-year sales growth compared to 343% in, in Illinois. But what I like about Illinois... <laughs> What I like about Illinois is $110 per visit. California only has $65 per visit because they have delivery. And that's $65 is the minimum order for delivery. Yeah. Um, with, uh, with Michigan having an average purchase of $78 per visit. Um, yeah. Either way, you're looking at these new states and you're like, my God, I, I, everyone wants a $411 million a month sales that California <laughs> has, but not everyone is the fifth largest GDP in the world. But right. nonetheless, you're looking at this and going, my God, even if a small little area like Saskatchewan can bring in 14.9 million, that's middle America. That's your Dakotas or your Wyoming or your, you yep. know, rural America is going to do a lot more than they would without it. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And look, you know, the average baskets and, and, and that kind of stuff will, you know, there'll be some, you know, much bigger variations in the early days here because of the limited license nature of some like Illinois, for instance. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that ought to get smoothed out over time. And, you know, it's really kind of come down to the population in each state and, and how many, how, how, how readily available uh, the retail, 
you know, kind of adult rec uh, cannabis industry is. Like if you're not allowing more than, you know, 200 stores in the state of, of, of whatever state, then like, yeah, of course, they're going to have higher baskets and you're going to have less people with access to it because they're not going to be willing to drive an hour to go get it. Right. And so, you know, but I think over time, these all these states that are kind of dipping their toe right now with limited license structures are going to see that, OK, it doesn't lead to all these other negative externalities. It doesn't lead to, to children getting access to it and then using it as a gateway drug to other kind of heavy drugs. It doesn't cause, you know, lifetime addiction problems. It doesn't cause all these things that everybody's afraid of. And that will, over time, then say, okay, we can issue more licenses, right? And so, you know, it'll take a little while for sure, but I think in the long, long run, like you're gonna see more equilibrium on, you know, people, if they, if they want it, they're gonna, you know, be able to get access to it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's wasting their edibles on your kids during Halloween. Just news. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, so let's unpack the shit show that is Oklahoma. Mm. Um, so comparing Oklahoma to Oregon, Oregon has 3,500 licenses. Oklahoma has twice as many. Oregon had like the equivalent of a billion joints in excess. I think it was like a million pounds at some point, something stupid overproduction, no. right? So that's no. kind of what we're looking at. Um, so when you go into a spot like Oklahoma, um, how do you, or do you invest in a place that's that overcrowded um, when potential federal legalization can make those state licenses irrelevant anyways? How do you look at a state like that and make a determination determination whether or not that's investable? Yeah, we've because of that oversaturation, we've we've not spent a lot of time trying to find a way to to invest in that state. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. A lot of these, you know, mom and pop licenses are going to go out of business. There's just not an easy way to support all of them simultaneously. They just can't make enough revenue to, to and then and then the cost of dealing with the regulatory side of things as we know in every state it just adds a, a significant cost to the opex line and that's not easy to deal with especially with 280e and so i can't imagine a lot of these license holders are making any money in that state and so you know maybe over time there's some but i think there's just going to be there, there needs to be some shakeout that happens first and obviously oregon has gone through some of that pain already and i would expect similar kind of thing to happen in in oklahoma and you know maybe at that point in time there's some there's like potentially a roll-up opportunity or consolidation play to be had there but um yeah it's it's not it's not a market that we're eager to get involved in right now well let me show you what uh, some crystal ball predictions have um and then get your take on that so basically, I took a, a look at about 14 different publications um, that had their own idea of what a crystal ball prediction would look like in the cannabis space. And then after that, um, I think there was maybe about 45 data points within the, the dozen or so. So small, small data set, but then nonetheless, the crystal ball predictions have um, at 41% that legal or regulations are going to be the biggest thing for 2021. So I'm curious what um, your crystal ball prediction is for, for your investment attitude. Are you looking at, because last year price and profit was number one and it dropped to number six. So, um, you know, if people are expecting demand to be the same at number five at 11% or, or rare cannabinoids, hemp and CBD consolidation, you already mentioned, whether it's capitulation or agreed upon. Um, I'm, in, I'm anticipating international expansion in Canada because they closed down the, all of these um, facilities to go back to uh, Colombia that they already left because of the terroir and, and low labor rates. So investment surges at number eight for predictions at 5.6%. Are you expecting to invest more this year? What is your crystal ball saying uh, as it relates to kind of this small data set? Yeah, so I mean, I agree with um, some of these things. And I mean, is this the question of like, which are the most likely to happen this, this year? Is that kind of yeah, the idea? Yeah, let's start with that. I mean, I, so I think that, I guess I think, I, would be pleasantly surprised if federal legalization happens this year. Like I, I just, I think 
the over-under on that is probably two years down the road, not one year down the road. Um, I think there's bigger fish to fry for the Biden administration. And I think, um, you know, the, the GOP is still not uh, convinced of, on, on cannabis, at least the guys at the top of that kind of control the votes on that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't, I just don't see it as something that's going to be in the top, like five things that the Biden administration actually wants to get done in the first year. Obviously there's, there's pandemic related stuff, there's vaccine stuff, then there's stimulus stuff, then there's climate change and environmental stuff that is kind of top of mind for, for Biden. So I just, I just think that cannabis has fallen down on the priority list where pre-pandemic it would have been higher. And I think the first year would have been more reasonable expectations but the pandemic has really thrown a wrench into that, in my opinion. Um, in terms of uh, like minor cannabinoids, I think that we're still a little ways off from you know public kind of focus on on those. Um, I do you know strongly believe in them, um, but I, I just feel like there's a lot of competition for headlines these days that. Um, mainstream media is not really picked up on this and, and therefore most investors are not really keying in on this. Um, but I do have some exposure to like the minor cannabinoid play in my portfolio. So, um, and then investment surges, like we've already seen it obviously in the public market. Um, so I think number eight on the list is, is already come true. I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think a lot of that investment surge is predicated on number one, the, the legal expectation of legalization. Um, and I do worry a little bit that if that doesn't come to pass, you know, it, by the end of 2021, that there may be some invest, like retail investor kind of um, sell-off where they realize that it's not going to happen on the same timetable and, and, or maybe it Schumer tries and it fails and then there's a sell-off a little bit, uh, you know, that, that may happen. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think, and I, and I hope that the FDA finally issues like, you know, full rulings on, on hemp and CBD, uh, certainly CBD as it relates to food and beverages as well. Um, the interesting thing there is uh, there are certain states that have their own version of the FDA that <clears throat> have already gone to the step of saying that, you know, CBD and food and bev is allowable in their state uh, up to maybe 25 milligrams or some limit. Um, I know the state of Texas, like shockingly enough, is one of those states that is have taken that step. Colorado has taken that step. Um, there's some legislation that's been introduced in California to that end. Um, and there's some other states that are on that list too. So that it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and, and whether that kind of forces the hand of the federal FDA to, you know, go with the flow, so to speak. I would definitely agree. There's a lot of FOMO out there. Um, and especially if, if Mexico and or uh, Israel legalizes becoming the third and fourth country, there's going to be a lot more people, um, to your point about the investment surge coming into the markets that we saw, um, you know, that drove up uh, all kinds of equities. Tilray's been going crazy. They had a 50% correction yesterday. Um, <laughs> Just, just yeah, I mean, I, from us, from a you know personal point of view, like we're, I mean, we we're primarily focused on the private side, and you know we work with private accredited investors, and and so you know I hope that the kind of public interest in this drives more capital to search out firms like ours on the private side. That you know, you know, there's no. Basically, it's, it, you know, the amount of capital that we have to deploy is relatively small compared to the opportunity sets that we're seeing. And, um, you know, on the deals that we've done, like we could have deployed two, three, sometimes four times as much capital as, as we did. Just, you know, the challenge is, you know, maintaining a balanced portfolio and, and um, you know, not having, you know, the ability to write as big of a check as we, we might like. But, um so we're hopeful that the family offices finally start to kind of see the light and recognize that this industry is, you know, a, a very interesting investment thesis in and of itself, but also a fairly good 
hedge or, or, or counterbalance to whatever positions they might have in the broader public equity markets um, because it's a fairly uncorrelated industry. Like the growth in cannabis is not really predicated on how any of the other in industrial sectors perform. And it's proven itself to be counter cyclical and, you know, grew, you know, quite healthy in, in a recessionary environment and will continue to do so. I think the recessionary environment, if anything, uh, will just cause more states to legalize, you know, more quickly because they'll be searching for ways to increase tax revenue and jobs in their, in their, you know, home state. And so, you know, to me, that just advances the wave of legalization on a state-by-state -state basis, regardless of what the feds, you know, do or don't do in, in Washington, D.C. So, you know, that's, that's been my perspective and what I talk to the family offices that we work with about is, is you know, hey, like this is, this is only, this industry is only going up and to the right and it's completely uncorrelated with your other investments. And, you know, it just makes sense from a portfolio balance standpoint that you probably want to have some exposure here, right? And it's up to you to decide what percent of your portfolio you want to do that with. But, um, you know, it's hard to make a case against the industry at this point. I'm curious if you are anticipating uh, yourself being involved in a consolidation as um, you know, you private equity, you're one of the last to um, have decent valuations. So up in Canada, publicly traded companies or speculation and, and uh, greed has is, is pushed those companies way beyond bubble territory, making the US one of the um, you know golden opportunities to get um, decent valuations. So I'm, I'm curious if stupid money is going to be coming in and rolling up all of these companies. Do you anticipate being a part of that? Or, or, or do you have an exit strategy? Well, I mean, certainly that's an exit uh, strategy for a lot of our domestic, um, you know, leaf touching assets uh, is they can be a, a target acquisition for a Canadian you know, public or a, or a US MSO that is traded on the Canadian uh, stock exchange that has, you know, currency in the form of their own stock that, you know, is probably much higher priced than whatever multiple they'd be paying for the US asset. So, I mean, if they're trading at, you know, 20 times revenues, you know, on the public market, they can acquire something for 10 times revenues in the US and it's highly accreted for them. Um, and, you know, the private valuations are generally a lot lower than, you know, 10x uh, revenue. So that's the multiple arbitrage that, that we see in, in the marketplace. And that's why, you know, we're very comfortable focusing in the U.S. market because there's lower valuations. But ultimately, it's a much bigger kind of market size than Canada, for instance. And you know, that's where all these Canadian companies are being, like the Canadian publics that are valued the most right now are the ones with the most inroads into the US. Mm. And there's a reason for that because the market here is so much better and bigger than, than the Canadian market. And so, you know, how does a Canadian public get more, you know, uh, higher price on their stock? They, they go acquire more US assets, right? Or try and build it yourself. But obviously that's, you know, proven to be quite difficult. Um, because of all the regulations. So that's a very easy kind of exit opportunity that I see for, for the US-based assets. I think I would add also maybe automation could bring down that as well. Um, I've been anticipating vertical integrated agriculture to hit cannabis. It's, it's slowly developing to have, you know, robotic assistance and artificial intelligence to be able to, for example, look at a leaf. And if the leaf is tacoing, you can see that that's either environmental effects like too much of a fan and or a nutrient deficiency. Um, with Canada selling $6 a gram and other US-based competitors being able to do it for a fraction of that cost, as low as like $1.30 a gram, um, are the Canadian counterparts going to have to revert to vertical integrated agriculture and utilizing artificial intelligence to reduce their labor count and improve uh, yields and, and uh, price points. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, the cost of production in Canada is higher than it is in the U S and obviously it's higher in the U S than it is in some place like Colombia. But um, 
you know, ultimately that's going to drive the Canadian cultivation side of the equation to have to consolidate. They're going to have to utilize um, big ag tactics uh, and toolkits. And I would expect that would definitely involve the latest uh, cultivation technology, you know, uh, tools, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, so I think there's definitely a, a very, and, and I think they've already learned some of that, that they that they need to consolidate, they need to do it on a bigger scale, they need to leverage their operating, uh, their operating leverage and, and corporate overhead. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's just, it's obviously a climate issue. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, we're not in the US generally importing that much produce from Canada, right? I mean, obviously, maple syrup is a big import from Canada, but you know, we're not getting fruits and vegetables really from Canada. And, and that's because we're, you know, we have a much easier time producing them here in, in the United States. And so I think that is definitely going to be a challenge for them. And I also see it eventually as a challenge for a lot of the Northern and, you know, East Coast uh, states in the U.S. that are building um, cultivation assets that they have to right now because they can't transport cannabis across state lines. But Again, in the long run, most of the produce in the country comes from the West Coast in places like California and and, um, and the South, right? And so the states that get more sunshine, really, it's, it's not that complicated. But um, I think, you know, indoor, obviously, indoor cultivation and greenhouse uh, cultivation can, can coexist. But I think, obviously, the least expensive outdoor cannabis is ultimately going to come from those states that have the best kind of natural growing conditions for for farms and so that once there's a you know long-term federal kind of structure where you can cross state lines with product i think the the outdoor cultivation in those states will will kind of you know take precedence and they'll always enjoy a lower cost of, of operating yeah which in my opinion does not include you florida I'm talking to you <laughs> um are you invested at all in Puerto Rico? Speaking of the Southeast, Puerto Rico being the only place in the world as an American that you can go and not pay federal income tax uh, utilizing Act 20. So for CBD companies, I've said uh, maybe up to 85% will fail unless they have an entity in Puerto Rico. What's your take on, on that uh, once cross-border opens up? Do you think there will be a flood of people going into Puerto Rico, even though they're not doing that in other you know, sectors? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to think about. I mean, that is the, the million dollar question is, is if what, what is, there's, there's obviously something that's keeping most kind of whatever mainstream industries from, you know, making Puerto Rico their core operational hub, um, you know, just to take advantage of, of the, of the tax treatment. So, uh, you know, I haven't looked into the details of Puerto Rico's tax regime but it'd certainly be interesting to, to ask that question and try and understand like what, what are the market forces that um, you know, make it attractive but also might make it less attractive in some other ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, ultimately that's gonna rely on you know, some kind of federal framework and, and it may take a while to get there. And that's, that's the thing, like I, I, I see the most likely federal legalization framework to be something like the States Act which is going to just kind of leave it to each state to decide their own, you know, course of, of legalization. And that won't create an automatic ability to just cross state lines. And so, you know, maybe certain states will try and set up a, almost like an interstate, you know, trade agreement kind of thing. Um, but, you know, those take time to figure out. And, you know, some states are going to be want to be more protectionist um, with their, I mean, they're, every every politician in each state is all about like how do we build you know small businesses in our state and create tax revenue and jobs and like if you open up the borders then you know does that risk the jobs that we just created and and all that kind of stuff and so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out i mean that's the one thing that's for certain is that this industry is going to be fascinating just intellectually to watch how it all unfolds over the next five ten years I know you're waiting for it, Jeff, but don't hold your breath for uh, infused potatoes out of Idaho. I, <laughs> I don't think that's going to come anytime soon. Oh, but what about the French fries? That, that'll be another thing because it'll be the oil that we're dipping that in. But that's right. Podcast that's for right. another day. Um, 
I want to ask you about um, Big Pharma. So they're kind of getting into the game. There was a historical um, merger with GW Pharma. Jazz Pharmaceuticals bought them out. Um, A lot of people are moving from Big Pharma to CBD and cannabis, um, maybe as a more holistic approach to taking a pill. Um, Allopathic medicine is like duct tape. We want to peel the onion back and get to the root cause, something that um, doctors have no idea what that is. So um, curious about that whole play and what that does to the industry that it's now intertwined. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I see it as a very positive step for the industry, especially as it relates to the pharmaceutical and, and like medical side of, of things and the health and wellness side of, of the plant. I have, have long been a believer in the, in the medical attributes of uh, cannabis derivatives. Obviously, you know, THC and CBD are the two most well-known molecules um or cannabinoids but you know there's a hundred other cannabinoids in the plant that are potentially uh just as if not more you know beneficial for certain types of ailments and and we're only scratching the surface from a you know science and research side of of what those um you know what those cannabinoids might be able to do for us um but there's a lot of interesting research coming out of canada and israel places that have federally legalized it um so that there's more studies available there and so, you know, more studies now being done now that uh, hemp has been legalized here in the States. And so um, I, think it's a, I think it shows that Big Pharma, you know, sees real potential here on the cannabinoid and, you know, how to involve cannabinoids maybe with their existing pharmaceutical compounds in a way to enhance them. Um, you know, and I think that that can only be a good thing. I think there's there's lots of potential for the medical side of this, and you know, it takes companies with a lot of research dollars in their in their bank account to be able to really kind of pursue that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, hopefully this just portends more more interest in the sector. But um, yeah, so I think it's a good step. I, I can't really comment on the price paid and all that kind of stuff. I think. You know, GW was obviously a pioneer, um, but at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure their Epidiolex was just, you know, CBD isolate, which is fine, but like, you know, there's a whole theory out there about the whole plant and uh, the entourage effect. And I tend to subscribe to those theories that um, there's benefits to having multiple types of cannabinoids kind of in- enhancing each other's work, if you will. Um, but you know, hey, that's the first step, right? And and getting people to understand that at least one molecule has merit. Now they're open to the next one, right? And so um, I think it'll if it, if all the other big pharma companies hadn't been paying attention, I think they're now having to pay more attention. Yeah, to your point on full spectrum versus an isolate, uh, Marinol is is not that great. A friend of mine that's passed away from multiple sclerosis that inspired me to leave my job and get into cannabis. Uh, hated Marinol, and I don't think Epidiolex is probably any better um, as uh, relative compared to the the plant and having a, a full plant extract. So um, yeah. I, I think ultimately there's also a lot of people who just don't trust Big Pharma, um, and a lot of the the cannabis consumer base they don't trust Big Pharma. They also don't trust Wall Street for you know some similar reasons. So um, GameStop, AMC, Wall Street, a uh, lot going down with that. And really kind of a realization that the market is not designed to help the little guy. So um, as trades went on and brokerage firms stopped allowing for trades to, to let the hedge funds catch up, um, what's that going to do to the cannabis industry? What do you, I know you're private more than public. Yeah. What's your take on that whole scenario and, and how it's going to trickle down and affect other sectors like cannabis? Yeah, well, I mean, I think Wall Street bets on the Reddit forums, you know, recently picked up a couple of cannabis stocks and and started, you know, promoting them. Um, and we've seen some runs in in certain cannabis stocks over the last couple of weeks as a result of that. So, I mean, it's already had an effect in that way. I think, you know, obviously, you know, your broader point is about how, look, GameStop was a big run up, but then there was a big fall and. You know, it was primarily the the individual retail investors, the little guys who were left holding the bag, um, and 
you know, these hedge funds, they have a ton of money and, um, you know, they're super smart. They have algorithms working on for them. They have high frequency trading uh, tools that they can employ. So, you know, I mean, that's part of the, the gamesmanship of Robinhood is Robinhood is free for you and me to go on there and invest, but that's because they sell that trading data to the high frequency trading firms like Citadel and others. And those guys get to front run basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And they get to say, Oh, you know, just willing to buy this stock for, you know, $50, I can buy it for $49 and 80 cents and sell it to him for 50 and make 20 cents. But I do that, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. And then, you know, it's, it's basically free, it's riskless money, uh, you know, for, for them. And so, you know, that's, that's who the customers really are of Robinhood. They're the big Wall Street, you know, giants. And so, you know, Robinhood markets itself as like a, a you know, I mean, it's called Robinhood. It's all about, you know, taking from the rich and giving to the poor, right? Like, I mean, they, they have a very good marketing play, but like, if, like, I guess my, the, the thing that I always believe, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Yeah. And, and whoever's paying them is really the customer that they care about. I mean, think about Instagram and Facebook and all that, right? Like they're pushing ads on you. You're the, you're the product, your eyeballs, your attention span on those social media apps. That's the product that is being sold to advertisers. So, and the data around it is being sold to other companies that are like maybe big CPG companies and things like that, that want to study, you know, consumer behavior trends. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge is, is, you know, that's just how the world, like, you know, it's just kind of how it's all set up without better laws or regulations to kind of stop that from happening. Like people just need to understand that's the game. That's the system. Um, so either vote for, you know, politicians who, you know, will, will try and change that or, you know, just don't just know that you're the product at the end of the day. And, but back to your broader point about hedge funds, like, I think, you know, hopefully it brings more kind of institutional investor interest into the cannabis space because that's been lacking. Um, and so, you know, the more institutions that kind of get wise to it, I think, uh, the more mainstream it gets in people's minds about the industry, the more legitimized the industry gets, the more capital eventually flows into that industry, both on a private and a public basis. So, you know, hopefully in the long run, that's a good thing. So to your point about, um, about using, you know, AI and technology, is the next Robinhood 2.0 effect bringing big Wall Street tech to the, the little guy? Will it be algorithmic trading and AI and machine learning for the little guy to be able to actually invest on, at the same scale? What, what is the, the, the level of playing field and, and how to compete against that? Well, so it's interesting because there are big uh, you know, Wall Street firms that have been lobbying to uh, to Congress, basically, to open up their investment community to the retail investor. Right now, you have to be an accredited investor to invest in a hedge fund or a private equity fund um, or a venture capital fund, for that matter. And so, you know, that has very, you know, strict kind of limits on, like, you have to make at least, you know, a six-figure salary, depends if you're single or married, and, you know, or how many, like having a million dollars of liquid assets and all this stuff. And so it really prevents the little guy from participating in these asset classes. And, but so, you know, it, you know, the Black Rocks of the world and, and, and KKRs of the world would love to be able to pull that type of capital into their, you know, capital base, investor base. Um, but at the end of the day, like, you know, those guys, those investors are probably going to have the least visibility into how all that stuff works. But at the same time, it gets them access to an asset class they haven't had access to previously. And so, you know, it, it, there's two sides of that coin, but there is, you know, some lobbying going on right now to open up, you know, those investment opportunities to like the 401k plans of the average Joe. Um, and I think if the, like, as long as the, you know, 401k administrator and those folks have like the right fiduciary interests of their constituents in mind and to be help be the governor of that um then i think that could potentially work but it's going to bring like you know a trillion dollars into the investment community for private equity hedge fund i mean it's it's going to be momentous if that happens um but in some ways that helps you know level the playing field as you said so 
Interesting. That would be the idea. Um, is there anything we missed? Anything that you uh, you know want to talk about at this point uh, before we we wrap this up? Uh, no, I mean I, I think we covered it. I think you know uh, I, we've been very focused in this space, both the hemp and the cannabis side, for for a few years now, and and uh, you know. I guess uh, it's been hard during the pandemic to kind of meet with other family offices and the like, but, mm-hmm. you know, we're, that's what we're really hoping for in the long run here or in the short run is to, to, to start having more meetings with those folks and kind of telling the story about, you know, why cannabis and, you know, why the private side is, is attractive and, you know, having both equity and debt opportunities, you know, could be a very, very good tool for their portfolio kind of allocation uh, strategies. And so um, that's really where our, our, our focus is at in, in the first half of 2021 is to start doing more investor meetings. So hopefully the pandemic cooperates. Yeah, I think a lot more people are available, especially with Zoom, you can do that remotely. For those uh, you know private wealth managers, um, family offices and the like, those that are interested, you know, anybody that watches uh, the Talking Hedge, they want to get a hold of you, Jeff. How do they do that? Yeah, uh, website is bravoscap.com, B-R-A-V-O-S-C-A-P.com. Um, my email is jeff at bravoscap.com, and you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, and we'll have those links in the show notes in the description as well. So with that, I think I want to wrap this up. I want to thank my guests. Uh, Jeff Kindig is the managing partner with Bravo's Capital. Jeff, thanks for being on Talking Hedge. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Yep. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.